0: This is a Blast Box Media podcast. The episodes in this feed were originally published on Crawlspace. Please use caution while listening and follow Crawlspace Podcast for more. Welcome to Crawl Space. I'm Tim, here today with Lance. Lance, how are you today?
1: I'm doing fantastic today. Sun shining. We're in the month of May, so that always feels good, knowing that spring's here. Warm weather's around the corner. But really, you know what's around the corner that I want to know about? Your feelings.
0: How are you today, Tim? <laughs> oh, I am doing great, Lance. Thanks a lot for asking. We made a new friend in this interview. His name is Bob Mata. He is a former defense attorney turned podcaster, and he's doing a great show called The Defense Diaries, or just simply Defense Diaries, and you can find it at defensediaries.com. And Lance, he's got a really interesting connection to true crime, being that his father was the attorney for John Wayne Gacy, or one of the attorneys.
1: There are many fascinating things about that. First, Bob Mata's father, Bob Mata Sr., in his defense of John Wayne Gacy, also had to defend the fact that he was Defending somebody like John Wayne Gacy and Bob Mata Jr. also has to justify why his father would defend somebody like that. And it's really interesting to hear him talk about this. Everyone has the constitutional right for a defense. And there are these bombshells that Bob has revealed in his podcast, one of which is the fact that evidence was planted, which led to the arrest of John Wayne Gacy. So you have that moral and ethical rub there.
0: Yeah, it's an interesting point. But I think Bob has found that if you tell people that John Wayne Gacy was uh, convicted on planted evidence, you know, most people don't really care uh, because he's he's a serial killer. He's convicted serial killer. But the argument is absolutely there. And it's, it's interesting to hear and Bob definitely makes a great point of it uh, with his podcast and in this episode. So I really hope you like it. Check out Defense Diaries and check out defensediaries.com. There are transcripts as well for all these Gacy tapes that we uh, we do get into a little bit in this episode. And
1: Bob isn't going to stop with just the John Wayne Gacy content. He's got more that he's working on, so make sure to follow him and stay up to date with everything he is working on. He does really great work.
0: All right, everyone, we're going to break for commercial real quick here and then we'll be right back with bob mata thanks a lot for listening everybody
1: and a thank you to our sponsors
0: back to the program welcome to the podcast bob mata
2: how are you today i am most excellent thank you for having me
1: I love it when people come on and when we ask them how they are, the answer is, I'm most excellent. I love
2: that. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty nerdy, but uh, I'll take it. You know, I'm going to run with it. I feel
1: like the generic answer is like, I'm doing all right. How are you? You know, but yeah. most excellent is like, yeah, you're probably doing pretty close to that.
0: We have a mutual friend who introduced us. We all collaborated on his project together. Can you tell us a little bit about that? So, Jason,
2: and we're talking about his fantastic podcast, uh, Santa maybe a criminal, which I love. I love the concept. And I think Jason had reached out to me. I think he had run into my podcast and he was digging it a little bit. And he had had this concept that he wanted to have uh, one of the characters be a defense attorney. So uh, obviously in my former life, you know, I'm a recovering criminal defense attorney. So I I had the background. Um, So he had the the idea to have me on as Derek Rudolph, uh, Santa's defense attorney. So he hit me up with the concept. I was like, dude, I'm all in. I love it. I love the idea. I was actually frankly disappointed that we didn't get to go to trial this season on, uh, Santa may be a criminal, but you know, he's, he's telling me that, uh, there's, there's more in store for season two. And I was like, dude, as much as you want to write, I'll perform it for you. So I think that it turned out really well. So yeah, I love him and I'm excited. Uh, he's decided to go to, uh, the true crime podcast festival out in uh, Dallas in August. So I'm going to get to hang with them. I was really kind of browbeating the hell out of him to get him to go out there. I'm like, dude, you got to do this. It's nice to get out there and, and meet some fans and get some new listeners and meet other people in the industry. So it's cool.
0: You are a true crime podcaster yourself and you've got a podcast called the defense diaries. Can you tell us a little bit about that?
2: I'd say like four years ago, I had like tinkered with the idea of doing a uh, true crime podcast. I, I, Had fallen in love with podcasting back when I heard serial for the first time, like many of us did, whenever it dropped seven, eight years ago. And then you know the buzz started to grow. And I'm like, I'm you know what? I'm gonna check this out. And I fell in love with it. I've always been like kind of a radio nerd, like I'm that guy, like with my kids in the car listening to like AM radio and shit. So (laughs) you know what I mean? I've I've always liked the the auditory stories, man. So when I I listened to serial, I'm like, God damn, this is amazing. I love this concept. And, and so what kind of was drawing me towards it is I've been a criminal defense trial attorney for at that point, probably about 17 years. And I was pretty good at telling a story, you know, uh, part of what you do as a trial attorney is you tell a jury a story and you're trying to make it more compelling than the other guy or the other girl who's telling their story, you know, obviously evidence and facts help, but um, you know, sometimes as a criminal defense attorney, the facts are not on your side. So you have to try to get a little bit creative. So, I thought I had the ability to be able to tell a good story, and I thought I had a pretty decent radio voice, and more importantly, I had had these tapes that my father had given me like thirty years ago that were sitting in my closet like unused. And my father had been John Wayne Gacy, serial killer. John Wayne Gacy's attorney back in nineteen seventy-eight, seventy-nine. Him and Sam Amaranti defended him at trial. As they prepared for trial, my father would go over to where Gacy was being housed pre-trial, which was this Sir Mac Memorial Hospital. They had him like in a, a Uh, mental institution, pre-trial as opposed to the jail. And my dad was preparing him for trial, going through everything that was coming in the police reports, going through everything that Gacy had basically made five confessions after he was arrested. And my father was pouring through these things, asking him, like, you know, what the fuck? And the interesting thing about it is that at that point, Gacy starts telling my father that he doesn't remember saying any of that to the cops. The tapes were fascinating. They, they really were. And it was like no one had ever heard them. What happens is in 2019, Joe Berlinger, who's a documentarian, had dropped the Bundy tapes on Netflix. I, I watched it the day it dropped, and I, I decided to take a flyer. And I'm like, you know what? I'm going to email this guy. I'm going to let him know that I have some tapes that I think he might be interested in. You know, I was half expecting like somebody on his staff to look at it and maybe get back to me in like a month and be like, oh, yeah, we'll think about it. But Berlinger got back to me within like three minutes after I sent this long email about the tapes I had. It's like, I'm definitely interested and I'm going to uh, circle you in with my producer. His producer, Dave, and I went back and forth for about nine months with Legal and Dave trying to work out a deal to get this this thing done. Ultimately, I could not get them um, where I needed them to be what I thought the value of the tapes was not even close. So my father and I ended up killing that deal. And ultimately what I decided to do with the tapes is to create a podcast. And that's what we did. So I, I had a buddy who was in the music industry. who was a sound engineer because I, I quickly discovered that I had zero idea what I was doing in terms of trying to actually Produce a podcast. I can write a script. I can try to record it. But in terms of making it sound like it's not hot garbage, like I'm, you know, in my garage making a podcast, you know, I had to get somebody on board. So my buddy, uh, who was, you know, relatively experienced in the music industry in terms of what he does as sound engineer, and he's a brilliant guy, he had never done a podcast. I'm like, yo, man. And he was starving because it was in the middle of COVID. At the end of the day, as horrible as COVID was for me personally, it was a godsend. Like it got me out of practicing law for about a year. It got me to, you know, really start the podcast. And and he was starving because the music industry in New Orleans was dead. Like he was like literally his bread and butter was gone. So I took the opportunity. I'm like, yo, you want to do this with me? He's like, book me a ticket. So I flew him up, and then we started it. I mean, everything on the back end is is all Darren, and Darren Wood is an amazing producer. The dude kills it. Like in terms of the production value of our podcast. I, I'm never afraid to to you know kind of like toot our own horn as far as like the production value of it cuz it's it's well done. I mean it's as well done as you know any of the major media companies that put their stuff out, you know. Which I feel about yours as well by the way. To me as a creator is is huge. So at that point we start and we just kind of roll with it, you know, like conceptually we were like, "Oh, you know, we have the tapes. I don't just want to sit there and play the tapes." So we said, "You know what? What's never been done on Gacy is I I want to focus on the victims i'm I'm sick of hearing about gacy it's been the same shit over and over i've been living with this guy as a part of my life for like 40 years like in a weird way but he has been my dad defended him so it's always been a part of my life and the one thing that i've never seen is you know this guy killed 33 people at least you never hear about the victims like that's got to end so we went in with the concept of like not making gacy the star of the show we wanted to make the victims memorialized. We wanted to acknowledge them. We wanted to talk about them. We wanted to talk about the investigation. So we started interviewing all the old cops that are still alive, and we wanted to, to talk about the arrest and then the trial. You know, obviously, I had my father, who oddly enough remembered very little about the case. It was like going in. I'm like, ah, oh, I got my dad in my pocket, man. This I'll, I'll get hours and hours of amazing audio from him, and he's like, Bob. I really don't remember much of the, you know, so it was like, that was a little frustrating, but you know, so, so we, the, the show kind of like started to flesh itself out and I'd say about three months in, we're interviewing one of the old cops and uh, just to kind of jump back so that, that Berlinger guy that I was talking about, he decided to run with my pitch without my tapes and his Netflix documentary, Gacy documentary just dropped today. I'm not going to lie. I'm a little bitter about it because about you know three months in, about six episodes in, we have a conversation with one of the old cops. Now, I I seemed to have a bit more of a rapport with these guys. And, and these guys have all done 20, 30, 40, 50 interviews over the last 40 years. You know, every time somebody's doing a documentary on Gacy, they go to the same cops. They always tell the same stories. They'll tell the same stories in Berlinger's thing, guaranteed. So, you know, at the end of it, I'm kind of like, hey, man, you know, is there anything else that, you know, that you haven't told any of these guys that you've done all these interviews with? And, the first guy tells me, he's like, well, there, there's one piece of evidence in Gacy that's like famous. It's this photo receipt. That was the photo receipt that they found allegedly in Gacy's garbage, which connected Gacy to the last victim, Rob Peast, who had gone missing from this pharmacy that he was working at. So that, that had always been the story for 40, 43 years that they found her in his garbage. With that, they went and got the second warrant. With the second warrant, they went down to the crawl space and they found, started digging up the bones. Cause on the first search, they didn't find anything that would have allowed them to arrest Gacy. This cop tells me, he's like, well, yeah, there's one thing that I've never told anybody. He's like that, you know, they didn't find that, that photo receipt in the kitchen garbage. I'm like, like, I, I look at Darren, I'm like, holy shit. I'm like, this is a fucking bomb. Like, this is crazy. It's like, maybe because I'm a lawyer, I understood the impact of what he was saying to me, but it was like immediately what that meant to me is that the fix had been in that, that they had planted the evidence, not in the way that somebody would plant like a bag of Coke in somebody's pocket. It wasn't like that. So after Mike Albrecht tells us that I'm like blown away and, and like Darren and I are like, holy shit, how do we handle this? You know? Cause it was like, like ethically, how do we handle it? Like morality wise, how do we handle it? It's like, you know, Gacy was a monster. Like, you know what I mean? It's like that, the conversation was going to be had like, okay, so they cheated to get him, but the guy was a monster. So is it wrong?
0: That is a wild situation. So I mean, but they would have they would have had other ways to get him.
2: No, right? they wouldn't. No? Have, no. No, they wouldn't have. That that's what that's what makes the story amazing. After Mike tells us that, we then follow it up with another cop who's like, ah, uh, you know, I don't I don't really remember that detail all that much, but he's like, I, I did hear that Schultz got it from the garbage out by the curb, which is different. We then talked to the final cop who basically tells us flat out that his boss, Lieutenant Kozenzak, who was the the, the cop who was obsessed with Gacy, who knew it was Gacy that had killed Rob Peace, but didn't have the evidence to get him, that he had come to him and said, look, you're not going to get credit for it and you can never, ever talk about it. But, you know, we found this photo receipt from that garbage that you pulled from the curb, which is free game if it's out of the curb. But that didn't happen either. That was the story that they were telling their cops on the street. I'm wondering like how my dad missed this fact that they had like planted this evidence because I had the inventory sheet from the, when they went and did the search at Gacy's house on the 13th of December. Right. I'm looking at this sheet, man, and there's no photo receipt on there. So basically what happens is when a cop goes into a house on a search warrant, they have an evidence tech who's following you around photographing shit and you know they're listing it and they're saying this is what we're going to do with the evidence we're going to send it to the lab we're going to bag it whatever so everything that they find in any search in any of our homes if you ever have the uh, unfortunate circumstance of having your home searched will be cataloged on a property inventory sheet so we dig up we find that guy who was not with the same police agency that you know a- ended up arresting gacy we find him he's living out in colorado and i'm like look I'm like, so they're, they're, you know, three of these cops told us that they didn't really find that, that thing in, in Gacy's kitchen. And he's like, look, all I could tell you is that like, I'm not obsessed with Gacy like the rest of these guys. He's like, I went in and I did a job. If it was on the sheet, it was there. If it wasn't, it wasn't there. It's that simple. I'm like, cool. I mean, like that confirmed it. So what they did is they took that photo receipt and they took this, the smell that they manufactured. And they said one of the cops was, you know, Gacy had invited him in the house and he smelled the smell of death in this heating vent okay that was also untrue because the same cop this carl humbert was the evidence tech and he had been down in the crawl space on the 13th the only one who went down there and i asked him flat out on the pod, i'm like did you smell rotting flesh did you smell decaying decaying flesh he's like absolutely not i didn't smell anything remotely it smelled like a, a musty basement but there was no smell of you know and i'm like well have you smelled decaying flesh he's like of course i do You know, wellness checks all the time. We find somebody that died in the tub and they've been there for three days. You know, I've smelled it many, many, many times. So both of the things that they used to get the second warrant on Gacy were both completely fabricated. They were they were lies. So what happens with fruit of the poisonous tree? Okay, like if my father had discovered it, or Sam Amaranti, the other attorney, had discovered it, is that everything, all the bones, everything would have been suppressed. Everything going all the way back, all the shit that they found, the the, the ring for John Zip, everything would have been suppressed. All the corpses, all the victims' bodies would have been suppressed. They would have had zero evidence because the, the court would have had to have tossed it. And I don't think that the trial judge would have tossed it. I, I think he would have said, fuck you guys. You guys made this horrible mistake. I'm not going to be the asshole here. I'm going to make the appellate court reverse it, but it's all going to get suppressed. So essentially, Gacy would have walked. There's no doubt about it. Like like that is how fruit of the poisonous tree works. So all the confessions that he made after he was arrested thrown out. Everything's tossed because it's all fruit of the poisonous tree. It's not like oh well you know the bodies are found in the river. No everything because he confessed to those. That's the only reason they were able to put those on Gacy is because Gacy said he dumped bodies in the river. Those confessions because of the the fruit of the poisonous tree would have all everything would have been gone. It would have been incredibly devastating. And you know, so I had the the lead prosecutor read his entire closing argument, which is mind blowing, man. It, it's like no, I don't know of any anybody in anything podcast, documentaries that's ever had like the lead prosecutor forty years after the fact read his entire closing argument that only fifty people, you know, in the world ever heard. Which you know, for one of the biggest cases in American jur- you know jurisprudence history, you know. So we were real nervous after we broke this, going to Bill Conkall, being like, hey, man we didn't know how to approach the fact that they had planted the evidence because we knew Bill Kunkel wasn't involved. Like the first time that we had talked to Bill Kunkel, he made it a point to say, hey, I just want you to know. And we didn't know why he was saying it. He's like, I had nothing to do with the investigation during the 10 days while they were investigating Casey. I, I was not involved at all. I didn't find out about the case at all in any capacity until they found the bones in the crawl space. And they called me at midnight that night. So Bill was kind of laying the groundwork that I might end up digging this, this fact up that's been hidden. And I don't think that Bill Kunkel was complicit at all. And I don't think, I think he may have found out after the fact that it had been planted because it's, it's a long story and I would take up this entire hour telling you guys it. So I'm not going to do that, but it's amazing. So the end of what I want to say about that is that Berlinger, when I discover this, I, I, I text his producer. I'm like, Hey man, we just changed the narrative on this case forever. And it's not theory. It's fact. I have the cops telling me I have the documents to support it. We've changed the narrative that like they've caught one of the most infamous, you know, serial killers ever based on planted evidence. And it's a story. I mean, does anyone give a shit? Because Gacy was an asshole and a piece of shit and we all wanted him dead. No, but the story is the story. I mean, we all want to know what it in. And frankly, it's an amazing story. You know, it's it's a it's one of those things where the cop knows it's the guy. Knows it's the guy, but just can't get him. So he did what he had to do to make it happen. So Berlinger, we tell him about it. He had already had 80% of the interviews in the can. He's like, Netflix isn't going to pay for me to refilm. You know, I'm going to have to go with the old narrative. I'm like, but it's a lie, you know? So basically what you watch, if you watch that documentary on there, they start with Kim Byers. That story she tells is complete bullshit. (laughs) And everything that they tell about with with the photo receipt is bullshit. And, you know, like... I'm kind of at war with him right now because I think that the truth needs to come out just because it's, it's the truth. I mean, it's not like Gacy's come back from the dead, but it's an amazing story. And I I think like ethically speaking and morally speaking, I think people will be like kind of on both sides, like, like who gives a shit if they planted the evidence? Well, I mean, we all should, I mean, the constitution matters, you know, you can't like, you can't pick and choose who you're going to have the constitution apply to who the fourth amendment applies to. It applies to all of us. And when you start picking and choosing and they had no idea he was a serial killer when he, when they planted that shit, none, they wanted to get him for one guy. They just happened to hit absolute nightmare gold when they started unearthing 33 young men in that, that crawl space. It was like, that took over like everybody's mindset anyway. It's like they, they, like this Cozenzak felt like, Oh my God, I'm a, I'm a hero. I'm an absolute, I just stopped like an absolute monster and, And frankly, he was, you know, I mean, you can't you can't deny that, but he cheated to get there. And, you know, so Berlinger decided to ignore the truth. And I think as a documentarian, he's got an ethical duty to report the truth um, as opposed to creating a narrative or, you know, continue to forward a narrative that. Is just known to be a lie.
1: You bring up a, a great point first. Well, you brought up several great points there. One of them is you said the truth has to be out there, and it is in your uh, podcast. People can check that out of the Defense Diaries. Uh, it's out there. Get as many ears on that as possible because it does really bring into question that ethical stance that one will take. And some people, you're right, will say Well, what does it matter? It's John Wayne Gacy. He was killing a bunch of kids. He was a murderous madman. But the other side is like, how about the cops do their job and catch him the right way? Maybe if they didn't plant evidence, they still would have caught him the right way. And how many times does this happen where it's not the guy? It's not just a one off. It's not like this cop had a gut feeling and was like, well, he obviously did have a gut feeling. But he didn't know the depth right. of it. He didn't right. know the extent of it. Had How many times has this happened where it's been com- completely wrong and there's completely. people sitting in jail because they had evidence planted?
2: That's the scary part of it. You hit the nail right on the head. There, there's, there's two aspects of it that are, that are scary. Number one, the one that you just crushed, which is what about the, the next guy who's innocent, who they've planted the evidence? There's no taking it back. Once it's been planted, that story is ingrained and that guy is probably going to prison on on bad evidence. So that's the first thing. The second part of it is it's a cautionary tale. And and what happened is this like the lieutenant who actually planted the evidence and and said that it was there, he created his own property inventory sheet, which I have, and he pulled out the disco- out of the discovery package the defense attorneys got Humbert's report. So my father never saw that report. That was my answer that I kept because I was like, my dad's a fucking great lawyer. How could he miss this? I caught it like immediately that that thing wasn't on this inventory sheet. They pulled it. So like that thing didn't exist. It was a, it was a mistake that I got it. I actually got my entire investigative report from the explains police from Tracy Ullman who had produced devil in disguise, which dropped last year on Peacock. She gave me, she was super pissed off at, at NBC because they had to like cut her entire narrative because she's big on that. Gacy was a part of a bigger child sex trafficking ring. That, that is like her thing. And NBC was like, nope, we're not doing that. You don't have any evidence. We're not going on speculation here. So she was super pissed. So she gave me, she's like, I'll give you everything I have. I'm like so upset. I worked on the thing for 10 years and they stripped the whole narrative and blah, blah, blah. So I ended up getting this, this document and I couldn't believe it. I would have gotten it anyway. Cause we ended up interviewing the primary digger who was down in the crawl space digging and, and doing that horrific, horrific job of digging. And he had all the original reports from the cook county sheriff's police so i i would have landed on that document anyway but the the cautionary tale is if that had been found out and it wouldn't have been difficult i mean i sniffed it out immediately as a criminal defense attorney the case would have been lost like bill kunkle would have been sitting there telling these victims families that i'm sorry like you know there was a terrible mistake that was made and this guy's gonna walk does that mean that gacy wouldn't have gotten caught in the future i don't know you know if, if gacy walks he's going and 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 like immediately pouring concrete over his crawl space if he would have walked out of that police station, you know, so it's hard to say, man, but it, it it's it, it's wrong in a lot of different ways. You know,
1: if he hadn't died in 94 and this came out, would he have had the right to a new trial?
2: Most likely not, because. The way that it's, been, but he might have because it, it would have had to have been a like, and just so we're clear, I wouldn't have been the fucking guy doing it. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, I was gonna ask. You know ask. what I mean? No, no, no way, dude. <laughs> like, what happened to Gacy is exactly what should have happened to Gacy. But, uh, it, like, there is this thing called a, a post conviction relief act. All right. So, like, once the appeals are done, like, that issue would have technically had to have been brought up and appealed, but it was newly discovered that would have been newly discovered by us. Like I couldn't get the, pro- like the prosecutors knew that I had it. Like I was on WGN news here when I broke the story and I-, I had been trying to get Terry Sullivan, who was the state's attorney that was working that case in the 10 days that they were investigating Gacy. And he just refused to come on the pod. And I, I was like, wow, like why? And then when we found out about the evidence, then I knew why. So during this interview, I, I had talked to the the guy who was running the GN news and who was going to be running the interview. I'm like, I want to, I want to ask Terry Sullivan some questions. He happened to be their legal consultant for the show and it was during COVID. So he's like, yeah, we're going to do you via zoom. And he's like, I I don't even know if Terry's going to show up. So sure as shit that morning when we're doing the interview on the news, Terry's sitting there in studio and they, they make me go through that entire spiel that I just went through with you guys about the evidence and what it was, blah, blah, blah. And they're like, thanks Bob. And then they cut me off. So I didn't get to ask Terry Sullivan shit. Now, Even if I had, there is 0% chance that Terry Sullivan is admitting that he was complicit in it. Like none of these old guys, except for the old cops who didn't give a shit. They're like, who gives a shit? Gacy's dead. We don't care if nothing can happen now. It's a good story, you know? And it's like with that PCRA thing, because it was newly discovered evidence and it was malfeasance, there's a good shot, man, that, that something might've happened legally with like, we're doing a, a part two on it where we're actually going to try to find more victims, like additional dig spots where well, we believe that there's more bodies. I'm going to be interviewing two of his appellate attorneys, one of them who happened to be one of my law school professors who had filed uh one of his appeals and was, you know, <laughs> the primary basis was of course that, you know, his lawyers didn't do their job properly, which is always the last to chuffer. So my father hated him. He's like, Oh, that bastard. I'm like, it's part, it's part of the course, man. You know, that's just how it goes, dad. You know, that kind of a long answer to your, your question, man, it, Potentially, yeah. Potentially, something definitely could have happened if Gacy had not been executed back in 94.
0: Definitely got to talk about your upcoming uh, searches for more victims. But I just want to get out there. Who,
2: who is your dad and, and how does he come into this story? So my, my dad is Bob Mata Sr. And back in 1978, oddly enough, my parents had divorced. I was in Chicago from Colorado on Christmas vacation visitation. So I, like I had flown back and I was spending Christmas with my, my father that holiday. So, you know, it's December 21st. We're sitting in my dad's little two bedroom apartment with my father and my uncle. And when the Gacy story broke and they're all out there, because somebody, one of the cops, and we think it was Rafael Tovar had, Include the the media into the fact that they were finding bodies in this house over in norwood park and so the media starts gathering immediately they have this little short attorney on named sam Amaranti. my dad's like holy shit like he's like i know sam at this point they pulled out three bodies out of the house he's like my dad stands up he's pacing around i was like hey man he's like you think i should reach out to him my dad had just left the public defender's office after 14 years and like hung his own shingles he's like do you think i should reach out to him and see if he needs help with the case and i'm like you know i'm like 10 at the point so (laughs) i'm like yeah that would be awesome thinking you know my dad will be on tv and you know not thinking about what the case or really having any kind of knowledge about what it was because i was so young and so he ends up sending a western telegram to Amaranti because this way predates email and texting and all that other shit it's old school so he sends Amarantia uh Western Union and Amaranti's like calls him immediately. He's like, "Yeah, he's like I need you to to prepare a motion to stop this doctor from coming on the news and saying that the fact that he had an orderly crawl space shows that he's sane." And my dad's like, "Well, you know, there's no prior restraint, man. The first amendment's not going to allow me to stop that doctor from saying anything that he wants." So that's how my dad got involved with the case. Now, my dad didn't get involved with the case until after Gacy's arrested and after Gacy sits in the police station. And unbelievably makes five statements, even though he's retained an attorney who theoretically at least should have, if he didn't, should have admonished the police that, you know, his client was going to be using his right to remain silent without an attorney present. And so uh, that didn't happen apparently. And so Gacy spills his guts and and makes all these statements. After that, my father gets involved in the case. It's another year while they're prepping for trial. And it was, uh, you know, obviously at that point, like a, a massive case not only in Chicago, but nationally. And it's weird because like when I started the pot, I had never heard of Dean Coral. He had been killed by one of his accomplices in like 70, I think it was 72 or 73. There was a one year overlap from Dean Coral who had killed 27 boys who had used the rope trick, who had used handcuffs and had two accomplices, which we believe Gacy did too with Cram and Rossi, the two guys that worked with them and, you know, admitted that they were digging in the basement And we had so many interviews with people that were, you know, talking about how there were two guys in the car when Gacy was scooping, like Gacy would sit in the back and he had some little, you know, ratty crony up front, like cackling at Gacy's bad jokes while, you know, they're scooping up these innocent kids to go back to this house and kill them. It was a huge case nationally, you know, and it's like, cause the number one question I always get is as a defense attorney in general, but like specifically with my, with my dad and respect to that case is like, how? how could your dad defend a guy like that? And it's, it's the constitution, man. Like every, we don't get to pick and choose who gets a trial. All of us get a trial. If you are arrested and accused, our constitution dictates it's mandatory it's it, there is no well well this guy's super shitty he's just awful he doesn't deserve a try. it doesn't work like that but not if you're a killer bob right yeah if you're a killer <laughs> you don't get a trial everyone
0: gets a trial except for killers you guys you're fucked we'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsor
1: And a thank you to our
0: sponsors. Back to the program. And then you followed in his
2: footsteps. I did. I did. Um, Miserable. Like, it's a truly miserable profession, man. (laughs) Really. It's like, I always give my dad shit. I'm like, man, you didn't tell me how miserable this is. And it's like from the criminal defense side of it, it's such an important role in the the entire system. And like, everyone hates criminal defense attorneys. It's because they don't know. They don't know what the fuck we do. They, everyone is like, oh, they're you know they're out there scumbags, bottom feeders, getting people off on technicalities. No, that te- that thing that you're calling a technicality or a loophole is the the Constitution of the United States. It matters to all of us. It does, you know. So what we really do, what what defense attorneys do, is we police the police. We make sure that the cops, when they're doing their investigation, when they're doing their searches, either pursuant to search warrant or they're searching you. You know, when you get out of your vehicle or they're searching your vehicle or they're getting you to, to make confessions, that they're following the rules that have been laid out through the Constitution, and then ad- adhered to and built upon by the Supreme Court. So anytime you hear about Supreme Court cases where there's our civil liberties at stake, those are super important, man. It's like people don't like understand how important that shit is, because if we weren't out there making sure that the cops are doing it right and following the law, we'd be living like almost instantaneously would give the cops free reign to do whatever they wanted to all of us, not just criminals to all of us. We, they could just pull us over and search our cars, search our person. No problem because there's no one stopping them from doing it because that's the point of fruit of the poisonous tree, that that the suppression of of potential suppression of evidence is what stops the cops from being dirty and and not doing it the right way. So if, if cops follow the rules They're not going to have a problem with the case. They're just not, you know, if if they've done it right, if they've done their investigation, if they followed the evidence, if they got the search warrants, if they've done it on the up and up, they don't have jack shit to worry about. If they didn't, they've got a problem and they should. And and I've taken the opportunity in the podcast to kind of defend what we really do, you know, because people like to shit all over defense attorneys. And I, to be honest with you, man, like the amount of emails and, and messages I get from people are like. Man, you really changed my mind about defense attorneys because this case that I'm covering in my second season, Anthony Garcia, I, I was lead counsel in that and they hated us as much as they hated him. Like how many times have you guys watched anything where you've seen some kind of like massive exonerating evidence come forward and these prosecutors just sit there and refuse to acknowledge that they fucked up? You know, what, what about those guys who's got an, you know, they have an innocent person in jail and they're, you know, somebody brings them, okay, well, here's some smoking gun evidence that exonerates my guy. And they're like, nah, yeah, I'm not buying it. You know, that, that we're convinced it was him, man, that is sickening to me, you know? And, and so there's a balance you've got, you've got bad lawyers on both sides of the aisle and you have great lawyers on both sides of the aisle, but the bottom line is. Is that the functions in, in in which each side performs are absolutely necessary to have any hope of ever finding justice, which is slippery at best. Well, sometimes
1: know? those uh, prosecutors that you speak of get TV shows. Indeed, they do. Well, you also said that they hated us as much as they hated Garcia. Who's they?
2: The people yeah. of the great the great city of Omaha. The press. The lawyers, everyone, the judges, they hated us. So like we, you know, they they looked at us as big city lawyers coming from Chicago into Omaha. In all honesty, I probably didn't help myself like the first, because that was a huge case in Omaha. It was like there had never been anything like it down there. You know, my client was accused of murdering four people over a five-year period. He was a doctor. It was a revenge theme type thing, where he had been fired from his residency back in 2001, harbored this grudge because this firing of this first residency just followed him for years and ruined his career. And he just got more angry and more angry and more deranged and eventually went and killed the 11-year-old son of the chair of the pathology department at Creighton University and the housekeeper. Presumably, at least in their theory, them thinking or the killer thinking that that was his wife. And then five years later, it comes back and kills the director of the pathology department and his wife on Mother's Day of 2013. So it was a huge case. It's a crate in town, first and foremost, you know, and that school is kind of the hub of Omaha and there's a ton of wealth there. It's a really cool little city, you know, but when I first came in, you know, I said, look, this is a death penalty case, a potential death penalty case. I am going to make the state prove their case beyond a reasonable doubt. I am going scorched earth, you know, I like, I don't have to practice in front of these judges, you know, because like where I typically practice, it's like, I'm not trying to piss off judges constantly because they're going to shit on me. I'm going to lose all my motions. They're going to be like, oh, fuck Mata, you know, like I'm like, this guy's a douchebag and I'm going (laughs) to, I'm going to deny all his motions. And like, he can take it. Up an appeal, that's not a good feeling as a defense attorney. So, you know, I, I try to toe the line a little more. But, you know, when, when it's a death penalty case, I think that, that the primary job for any defense attorney is to make sure as much as you possibly can that they are going to potentially be executing the right man. And you can only do that one way. And that's by litigating the hell out of it. Can't be like, oh, well, you know, we're we're going to go through the motions here. And you know, no, man, that that is not what my duty is. My duty is to make sure that if they got the guy, that they got the right guy. Because at the end of the day, they're looking to kill him. You know, we went in hard and we fought really hard. And it was an absolute war. And my dad, it was the only case I tried with my father. And, you know, after it was over, he's like, Bob, I, I handled Gacy and I handled this. And he's like, procedurally... This blows Gacy out of the water. He's like, I've never seen or heard of any case like this ever. I mean, because the state did everything in their power to convict this guy, man. So it was like, it's going to be a a hell of a story. And we're six episodes into, well, five episodes into the second season, which is the Garcia case. And it's, it's crazy, man. It's crazy. Okay. So how many episodes did
0: you do in season one about uh, John Wayne Gacy? Thirty. Six
2: man. <laughs> so, I, like, I was a neophyte. I didn't know. Like, if if I was smart and I, I would have known more about the industry, I probably would have split it up into three seasons. I had to get the whole story out. You know what I mean? It was like it, there was like I, I couldn't figure out where to cut shit, and it was just the the nature of the podcast. It was like a true true deep dive. Like I just dove into that case more than anybody's ever dove into it, and. And I had like the insider knowledge, man, you know, like the tapes ended up becoming like an afterthought to me. It's like, we played the tapes because I wanted the public to be able to hear them for whatever reason, if people are just fascinated by serial killers for, for whatever reason people are, and they just are, I don't know why, because I have no particular fascination with serial killers, but people seem to just be fascinated by the whole concept of them, you know, and, and I thought that they were historic. I thought they had true historic value. And I think that, you know, them sitting in my closet was a disservice trying to figure out what the fuck was going on with this guy. Like, why was he so warped? By the time I got to the trial and I had my father read his opening statement, which was incredibly powerful. And it was really, an opening argument as opposed to an uh, opening statement he gets emotional he's crying when he's reading the, the victim's names like 40 years after the fact and then you know i had conkle do his entire closing at darren and i like it was like it's like two hours and that was like slightly edited because it took him four hours to read it i couldn't believe he was 82 sitting in the in the lead prosecutor's like living room and he agreed to do it for us and i was like Fucking blown away, man! Like there's, there's, there's just never been anything like it. I mean, you can listen to that podcast and like we end it with Bill Kunkel's closing argument that he gave at trial, reading directly from the transcript, and he f- crushes it, man. As long as it is, man, it's it's worth the ride, you know. But it's <laughs> my pod is not one, and it's much like yours. You guys, you guys are densely packed with facts. You know what I mean? You can't have that shit where you're like drifting off into thought. For seven or eight minutes. And I'm like, oh shit, did I, you know, did I put the dog out? Did I, you know, what do I what do I have to do today? You know, where you start thinking in your brain, and then you realize eight minutes has gone by and you missed eight minutes of shit in the pod, you know. So you're like, oh man, I gotta rewind it. It's densely packed. So it's like there's no banter, you know. I mean, I try to infuse some humor in there with all the true crime fans out there, man, like not really understanding how the system works, you know, like watching things or listening to things and terms are used and they might have a vague idea of what it means. Like I've made it a concerted effort to educate people on exactly what is what in the criminal justice system, what emotion to suppress is, what it is, how you draft it, what, like, what the ramifications of it are. And I do that. It's your favorite time, my favorite time, like sporadically throughout the season where it's kind of like an educational thing where I, I give like kind of a hypo and then I'll explain like that's what this is, you know, do you know what a, an MO is? Like, I know you hear the the phrase all the time, but do you really know what it is? You know? So I go through all that shit through, through the course of the season. So, you know, we've made it interesting. It's definitely not boring, you know, for as long as it is like, that's the concern, you know, right. You don't want it to be like so dry and like just so long winded that it's like, Oh my God, like that, you know, this guy's saying the same shit over and over. So we don't do that.
1: It's also very much worth the listen because You do learn a lot from this. And if you want to go back and listen to it again and dissect it, dissect the things that are said there from the opening argument to the closing statement, no matter what field you're in, if you're a podcaster podcasting about true crime or if you're an attorney, you can get a lot from that beyond just the fascination with serial killers.
2: Totally, man. Our numbers are great for like basically me marketing through social media and just networking and meeting friends in the industry, other creators who are kind enough to do things like what you guys are doing with me and having me on your show and hopefully getting the word out that the pod exists. Cause you guys know, man, it's like if you're not Wondery or, you know, iHeart or one of the major media companies right out the gate, man, you're nowhere to be found. It's like people have to know the name of your podcast in order to find it. You know, things like this are incredibly important, but I, I sent. About this tweet today is like because I, I have a lot of podcasting friends that like love my show they're like fucking like dude your show is like fire and so i was like you know you know that term a comedian's comedian <laughs> like we're you know it's like the comedians that maybe the public isn't like in love with but like comedians love him because he's hilarious and you know in a comedic type. i was like i was like i'm starting to get the feeling that i have a podcaster's podcast i don't know, maybe. <laughs> Who is on your team? I mean, in terms of the production, front to back production, it's it's myself and Darren. I do all the writing, the research, obviously the hosting. Uh, he does all the back end shit, man. I mean, I, obviously I've got, in terms of my full team, original music was made by my brother-in-law who's an amazing musician and was in this band called The Herd, which I'm always trying to promote because they were fire. Like All these guys from his band ended up going to like the drummers now with revivalists and his keyboardist is this guy, Neil Francis, who's absolutely blowing up right now. And his best friend, the bass player for Neil Francis, they were all in this band that heard. So he did all my original music. So Taras and, and uh, his homie is mastering all the music, and his name's Ryan Gack. And then our original art was done by Alex Carver, and we're actually updating the uh, the cover art. The, the funny story about my cover art is that like I had a fan who had reached out. You know, she she told me this story, and I could never unhear it after she told it to me. She's like, I I was in the car. It was about a nine hour drive. I was listening to your pod. She's got one of those screens like most of us do these days, where it's it's showing what you're watching. It's got so it had the picture of my cover art in her car. And she's like, man, like about six hours in, I just had this incredible urge for an ice cream sandwich. And she's like, I couldn't figure out why I had this urge for an ice cream sandwich. And then she's like, I finally realized it. She's like, that book looks exactly like an ice cream sandwich. And then once she said that, I was like, oh my God, it really does look like an ice cream sandwich. So I called Alex. Mm. And I'm like, I'm like, mm. and I love ice cream sandwiches, man. So I'm like, I called Alex, I'm like, dude, we gotta put we gotta put something together. Like that thing looks like an ice cream sandwich. I can't unsee an ice cream sandwich now every time I look at my cover art. But who doesn't love an ice cream sandwich? For real, man. I mean
1: (laughs) with some raspberry sauce? Look at all that raspberry sauce.
2: Exactly. Is there a more delectable (laughs) treat? I don't know that there is.
1: (laughs) I'm a little surprised as an attorney, you very liberally used crawl space seven times. I kept counting here seven times during your uh, interview. So we will have to send you a bill for that.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's a nice fit. It's a nice fit. It's funny. When I first got into the game, that's, that's actually like how I found you guys. Like I, I was like Googling cause I was trying to see like who had done something on Gacy. And, you know, so I was typing in kind of like the keywords with Gacy and boop, You know, Crawl Space Media, there you guys were. So, you know, that's kind of how I dug into you guys initially. We often get free plugs when
0: John Wayne Gacy's uh, story is covered. All day, baby. Yeah, because that word is is used a lot.
2: You guys are going to get a huge drive here because I'm <laughs> telling you that, that not from not from my pod, but yeah, in the future with that, but like that thing's dropping on Netflix, dude. Oh, boy. Yeah. People are going to be yeah. typing crawlspace into Google all day. Oh, that's
1: really interesting.
0: You know, it's funny. This is the first episode we've ever done where we spoke about John Wayne
2: Casey. <laughs> Yeah, I was digging through your catalog, man, and I was like, Yeah, like guys have never done anything on Gacy, man. So I was like, <laughs> oh no, that's that's amazing. How many episodes are you planning on doing for season two? I'm guessing somewhere in the neighborhood of twenty-five is where it will land. I'm already on like I've already written six and seven, and I'm still like on the first set of homicides. You know what I mean? So it's like in the trial and in, in the preceding litigation up to the trial is so amazing. It's such an amazing, amazing story that it's like, I just, I can't short shift it. I mean, my wife, who was one of our attorneys on the team, you know, was kicked off the case like two weeks before trial because she had made a statement to the media and, you know, they had been trying our guy in the press for three years, man. Like, it's just, it's one incredible story after another. And the case just has like everything that you could ever want from a true crime perspective, you know, all under the umbrella. And, and you know, the hardest thing for me with that case is because I'm the defense attorney, you know? So like I, I'm making it a point and I say it in the first episode, this is not me on a soapbox, relitigating the case saying, this is why my guy's innocent. I said, no, it's not what I'm going to do. I'm going to lay out, the entire case that the prosecution laid out because everybody that's done podcast episodes on the Garcia case has used one source material, and that's Todd Cooper's book, who was the the beat reporter for the Omaha World Herald. He wrote a book with this other guy here, uh, like Harry Cordis. They were state lackeys. Like the state was like feeding them information, like especially Todd Cooper, like because he he would have articles in the paper where he couldn't have known other than getting the information directly from the state. Like just shit that was not public knowledge. So while they were trying my client in the press, needless to say, when his book comes out. Our entire defense is devoid in that book. Our defense was amazing. You know, it really was. I mean, my client looked like Ted Kaczynski when they arrested him, like with the fucking Unabomber because he was insane. They had him in solitary for three years. He lost his shit in there. So they were wheeling him out. He's got this unwieldy beard and looks crazy. And he slept through half of his death penalty case, man. Like no jury in the world is ever going to, to come back with a not guilty when a guy's sleeping through his death penalty case. Cause that gives you one impression as a juror, this guy doesn't give a fuck. You know what I mean? So it, I, it didn't matter what our case was. Cause we had science behind it. Like it wasn't me speculating. Cause it was, a. it's it, both cases were completely circumstantial. And, you know, there was no forensic DNA that was ever found on either of these killings and they were knife killings. And it's like, that's crazy. When people are killed with a knife, it is the most brutal act out of any way to kill somebody because there's blood everywhere. You know, and most times people aren't standing still to allow you to just kill them. It's not like the movies and TV. People are fighting for their lives. You know, I mean, there there are defensive wounds. Most you know, most of the times the offender nips himself because he's fighting with hand fighting with the person that they're trying to kill, and they're trying to stab and like trying to hold somebody. You're gonna you're gonna clip yourself. It happens all the time. You know, so for there to be zero forensic evidence not a not a hair not a fiber not a blood drop nothing is insane to me like it was always the hardest thing for me to kind of reconcile so what we're going to do is i'm going to lay out and i tell the people i said i want you to act as the jury but for the first time everyone who wasn't in that courtroom is going to hear both sides of it and you come down where you think you can come down they had a great narrative the state's narrative fit like a glove and my guy being kind of a weird guy fit like a glove, you know? I mean, he fit the narrative and, you know, but in terms of actual evidence that they had, they really didn't have anything, man. It was like, they had a a great story and they had a, like a 10 year old, 11 year old victim that people wanted somebody to fucking hang for, for killing them, you know? And, and everyone wants justice for all those victims. You know, my job was just to make sure that the right guy's going down for it. I don't know if it's because we put together such a, a good defense that I kind of, Tricked myself into thinking that maybe he didn't, because my client always maintained his innocence. Like this isn't a guy that like ever confessed anything ever, which is one of the ways I can do the pod without breaking attorney client privilege. But the most challenging part of me doing that that case is because I was the defense attorney, there's a misconception that that defense attorneys don't care about the victims. And that's the furthest thing from the truth. I care about nobody more than the victims. I I my job if there is a victim, if it's not a victimless crime type case, is to make sure that, that they got the right guy, you know, always. And you know, because if they didn't, justice really wasn't done. Times two, like the person that committed the crime actually isn't brought to justice. And the person that didn't actually commit the crime, but has been convicted, there's no justice there. You know what I mean? So it's like, I have to like tread very carefully. It's like very challenging. And like when I'm going through the narrative of the case, do I use their narrative? The one that they put out there? Because I had very different ideas about when the second set of homicides took place. They had a time frame that they were stuck with. Because of they were pinging my client's phone, like that was the only thing they had. They had him in Omaha. That was kind of their linchpin. Like mere presence in the state was enough for them to to finally go after and arrest him. It just doesn't work. The facts of the case don't work. The science didn't work. I I hired the preeminent forensic pathologist who was ancient, but his name's Werner Spitz. He did like every famous case ever. The guy's been the forensic pathologist OJ. Everything did the autopsy on the Warren commission for JFK. Like the guy's been around forever and you know, he's coming on and, and we retained him and he's saying, look, when they found this body, the second set of bodies three days after the state's claiming that he was dead, he was still in rigor mortis. That is scientifically impossible unless the body is frozen. Like this, there's no way that guy was killed at, at Sunday afternoon on mother's day, like his body would not be in rigor. He'd be in liver mortis, would already been set in. Like he, like all the blood would have flowed, whatever way the body's laying liver mortis is when all the fluids flow, you know, down towards the ground, gravity wins, you know? So it's a, it's a crazy case, man.
1: I'm so glad that someone like you is in the true crime podcasting industry, if for nothing else but to help with definitions of what is legal or what we're talking about. Cause you've listened to early episodes of what we've done, and there's been so much shit that personally I know I've listened to, and I've been like, what are you talking about? You have no idea misusing words because I'm just not familiar with it. And I think, again, like I'm kind of going back on a previous point, I think that's important.
2: Totally, man. And, you know, I mean, I I think it gives everybody just context. It's more enjoyable, especially if you got, you know, deep dive pods that are really digging into cases and they actually have an idea what the hell the people are talking about. It's like for as much true crime shit as there is out there, what they're not doing is educating people on what the hell they're talking about. There's just this assumption that people understand the system and they don't. And like, I learned that from practicing. Anytime I got a client that had never dealt with the legal system, they had no idea what anything was, anything that they'd be in court. They'd be like, I, everything that judge said, I had no idea what the fucking name it meant. You know what I mean? There's motions to quash and we're going to continue. it's like, so yeah, I've taken it upon myself to try to educate people out there in an interesting way to you know kind of help them, not just with my pod, but like you said, man, with like every pod.
0: Yeah, I think so. It definitely helps us. We're not well versed on some of the legal parameters of cases. You know, we do our best, but you know, we rarely have attorneys on. But sometimes we do. I feel like we're playing catch up a lot of those times.
2: Dude, listen, I like I'm making the offer now. Done it on many, many pods. You know, because like people will have me on kind of in this style where you know that they allow me to kind of talk for nine hours, (laughs) ramble on nonstop. (laughs) Uh, you know about what my pods about but I, I make myself available to my friends in the industry. If they've got a case where there's maybe a complex legal issue, or something that they kind of want fleshed out man like I, I'll always be happy to jump on a pod with you on an episode if you guys need me to like clear some shit up or to explain it.
1: You might regret it, but okay. (laughs) Uh, No way,
2: dude. No way. I I love it. I love it. This is so much better than practicing law, dude. So, (laughs) you know, it's so much better. So, yeah, no, I'd I'd love to do it. Well,
0: thank you so much, Bob, for joining us here. And we really appreciate your time and your story. And the podcast is great. And I urge our listeners to check it out, Defense Diaries. Thanks a lot for coming on.
2: Hey, man, I I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. I love your show as well. It's a mutual admiration society. So, uh, Uh, Again, I thank you guys for the time and I thank you for the opportunity to come and join y'all.